This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. Iran's shooting down of Flight 752 continues to be an important and relevant topic on Fight Back. This past week, Iran's foreign affairs minister admitted the people of Iran were lied to in the days after the plane was downed by Iranian military forces. When Iran first said it was a technical problem that brought down the plane, with 176 on board, including 57 Canadians. In another development, Iranian President Hassan Rouhani made veiled threats against European forces in the region, claiming they may be in danger. And an Iranian general is saying that the incident was a, quote, mistake imposed by our enemies. The regime is also demanding the U.S. apologize to Tehran for its previous crimes. Meantime, some Americans are interpreting Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's recent comments as blaming the U.S. for the tragedy. While representatives of our government say helping the families of the victims is the priority. On Wednesday, Libby Snymer spoke about developments to that point with former Foreign Affairs Minister and now Conservative Leadership Candidate Peter McKay, David Carment, Professor of International Affairs, Carleton University, and Larry Haas, a former White House communications strategist and currently a senior fellow for U.S. foreign policy at the American Foreign Policy Council. I think that uh, what we've seen over the course of the last few days is actually a reflection of the fact that, like many countries, including ours, uh, Iran is divided. Um, it's divided at the top, and it's divided across the population. Ultimate power rests uh, with a, an unelected supreme leader who acts as a semi-dictator, uh, and he is supported uh, by the uh, Revolutionary Guard Corps. You know, we were hearing early on that uh, the attack on Soleimani was going to somehow unite the Iranian uh, people uh, with their government and against the United States. And we've seen, not surprisingly, uh, actually quite the opposite. We have seen a rise in the long-festering anger of the Iranian people toward their government. That's why all of these divisions, I think, are the reason why you're seeing this difference from day to day in terms of who says what and what it is they're saying. Dr. David Carment, do you think that this, all of the the unrest currently in Iran, do you think it has the potential to bring this regime down? The, the concern that I think a lot of us have, looking sort of on the... Uh, at this picture from the outside is whether the the current policy is uh, inducing behavioral change within Iranian society and within the political milieu, or whether it's really going to antagonize them and push them into a corner where they will ultimately strike back, which will then further justify a more militant approach uh, from the American side. So there's a larger set of questions that need to be really addressed uh, before we can even get into the question of whether changes within Iran are, are beneficial or not. What is the 
the end game that the Americans in particular are trying to pursue here. Peter McKay, there are people here in Canada. Either they're saying uh, at the end of the day, this is Trump's fault because of the assassination, or they're saying once again, Canada is caught in the middle between in a dispute between the United States and Iran. What do you say to those people? Well, I say the responsibility for the bringing down of, of Flight 752 lies entirely and exclusively with Iran. You know, this suggestion that this was the fault of Donald Trump or uh, was the culmination of other events is simply untrue, and it's, it's actually taking the focus away from where the responsibility lies. We need to only look back a few years when people were again in the streets uh, and, and people were being killed and rounded up and thrown in Evan jail. And the, the Iranian people, the Persian people were calling out for the world. They were saying in Farsi, are you with them or are you with us? And I believe we have a moral obligation to help those inside Iran um, towards the path of peace and democracy. And, and I think continuing specific steps um, the investigation is one thing, but including applying Magnitsky sanctions here in Canada and in places where they have legislation to pressure Iranian regime officials. These are, are good tools, and it's aimed at present, preventing countries like ours being a safe haven for those in the Iranian regime. But it requires coordination with other countries and other agencies and our allies, essentially. And there was a reference to the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, the IRGC. Yep. We should be listing them. In fact, Canada, you will know, Libby, uh, passed a motion in the Parliament of Canada over a year and a half ago uh, that would do just that. So it wouldn't just be the Quds Force that's listed. As a but, terrorist uh, organization. As a terrorist organization for the atrocities that they have committed uh, around the region and, quite frankly, around the world that were headed up by this General Soleimani, who uh, who was the target of the uh, the drone strike. And so it's about leadership. It's about countries, Western, peaceful nations such as ours, NATO countries, coming together and demonstrating through words and action that we are, in fact, with the Persian people uh, who want to embrace uh, a peaceful and, uh, and democratic future. And Canada is well situated. So I don't see us as being squeezed between uh, the United States and others. I see us being firmly on the side of those countries that want to assist and to help Iran reach its peaceful aspirations for a future for their people. Former Foreign Affairs Minister and now Conservative Leadership Candidate Peter McKay, David Carman, Professor of International Affairs, Carleton University, and Larry Haas, a former White House communications strategist and currently a senior fellow for U.S. foreign policy at the American Foreign Policy Council. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Now to the story that's been riveting for many, the prospect of Harry and Meghan making Canada their home, at least part-time. The big question for most Canadians, who will pay for their expensive security? Meantime, the Duchess was visiting a woman's shelter in B.C. on Tuesday with social media all over it. Alison Eastwood is editor-in-chief of Hello Canada. She joined Libby on Wednesday to talk about events to that point. 
we had a big reader poll just before Christmas in which we asked readers um, really how they felt about the Duke and Duchess of Sussex's role within the royal family. And there was a huge outpouring of support for them, as well as um, suggestions that they might break away from the royal family. So really, like Canadian readers know where it's at. And I feel as though they are much more empathetic toward the Duke and Duchess of Sussex's plight, as it were, than perhaps in in Harry's native England. Is that just because we're not British? (laughs) We have the benefit of, of some distance, and there's certainly that. But also... Yeah, I mean, I don't think, I think even though many Canadians are supportive of the monarchy, as Justin Trudeau has observed, we also don't see why it has to be all or nothing, right? Um, many people are like, why can't they continue to represent the Queen and, um, you know, in the Commonwealth and do their charitable work, but also be independent? There are other examples of members of the royal family who have either sought their independence or were just given it at birth and they do perfectly fine. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, as you know, this massive outcry, uh, mostly amongst the British tabloids, who are, of course, have been sort of singled out by Harry and Meghan on their Sussex Royal website as being the main reason that they are essentially leaving Britain. For most of the people that I've talked to, it, it's a it's a it's a money issue. They're right. fine, but they don't want to right. pay for security. But if Harry and Meghan remain internationally protected persons mm-hmm. under the criminal code, then we will be on the hook. Yes, we will. But the numbers, nobody knows. I've heard everything from 2 million to 10 million. Um, really, if it's 2 million, many people would see that as a bit of a drop in the bucket, considering the size of our population. In Britain, they claim that um, the royal family only costs the taxpayer one pound a piece um, per person every year. Um, so, in Britain, though, it's it's mm-hmm. a big draw for tourism. And, yeah. you know, some people say that would happen here, but I don't see that. What are people going to come to Canada, uh, hoping to glimpse them, you know, somewhere on Vancouver Island? I don't think we should underestimate the the power of uh, of the royals, I mean, especially the young royals. And if they do choose to make it their home, if they choose to make BC their home, that's going to put it on the global map in a way that it really wasn't before. Most people still see Canada, even the New York, New York Times still sees Canada as a one big frozen wasteland. So, but I think there is a certain ignorance about about Canada, and I think really the more the, the more attention can be drawn to it in a positive way, the better it will be for tourism and um, i think i i feel as though it will definitely boost um, our economy and what about they say they want to be financially independent but what the heck does that mean they've trademarked sussex royal so uh, and there's i guess discussions about what exactly they can do uh, so they're going to make money mm-hmm. off royal tchotchkes yeah well <laughs> Hopefully, uh, it's a, it's a little more you know weighty than that. But yes, they have trademarked it for over a hundred different uh, products and services uh, of all kinds of things, from obviously their website down to you know t-shirts and mugs. Um, so you know clearly they're being very commercially minded. But really, in the background is their drive to use this to you know to use their profile to draw attention to the causes that 
really matter to them. They really do want to make the world a better place and save the planet. And it's not just lip service. What's next? What's next? Well, we're looking to see, obviously, how things will unfold in terms of security, in terms of, uh, you know, where they're going to live. They obviously love BC. Megan has, uh, as we said, just visited a women's shelter there and they may make their home there. So um, we're just waiting to. And the Queen is also going to um, reveal further information about exactly what it's going to look like and how royal Harry and Megan will be. That was Alison Eastwood, Editor-in-Chief of Hello Canada. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. The Conservative leadership has begun in earnest now that Peter McKay has officially announced he is in the race. He is co-founder of the Conservative Party, having merged his progressive conservatives with Stephen Harper's alliance and subsequently served in the portfolios of foreign affairs, justice and defense under Harper. Pierre Poliev, Aaron O'Toole and Marilyn Gladue have also indicated they are running to succeed outgoing leader Andrew Scheer. And then there's the race for the Ontario Liberal leadership. Six candidates are in the running for the party, which at the moment does not have official party status following a devastating loss to the PCs in the 2018 election. To talk about the provincial liberal race and the federal conservative contest, Libby Snymer was joined by Andrew Brander and Ashton Arsenault, who are both senior consultants at Crestview Strategy, and Aleem Kanji, vice president of government relations at Sutherland. We look back to the last federal election and you see the Conservative Party of Canada under the leadership of Andrew Scheer receiving the most votes. They won the popular vote. A lot of people forget that. It actually was the second highest vote total uh, for any Conservative Party leader, uh, trailing that uh, of just uh, uh, Brian Mulroney back in 1984. Does Peter McKay entering the race right now represent that middle brand, that middle of the road um, uh, candidate that they need? Peter McKay, of course, spent a lot of time in politics. He has done his, his bit on Bay Street as well, uh, respected within the party, can he, can he build a bigger tent? Can he uh, uh, navigate around, you know, those so-called social conservative issues that many believe did the conservatives in in this last election? Ashton, uh, do you agree that a lot of this hinges on, on making sure that the person is kind of middle of the road and is not a social conservative? Well, I think that's ultimately a question for the membership, uh, frankly. Look, I am uh, quite satisfied that uh, Peter McKay has decided to hop into the race. I think the timing was right. I think he has been biding his time uh, considerably now for a while. Uh, and all of the signals sort of led towards this. And by all accounts, he's going to have a really professional team um, attempting to help him get this done. Peter is sort of this middle-of-the-road, or at least understood to be a middle-of-the-road conservative, if not leaning uh, slightly towards the red Tory wing of the party. How is that going to stack up against people like, let's say, Pierre Polyev, who has very um, established sort of conservative bona fides across the country and uh, is certainly more vocal about uh, the principles of conservatism and where he views that uh, with respect to the party. So, uh, I think it's going to be a tough road to climb for Peter McKay. It's certainly not a uh, going to be a shoe-in contest for him, and he knows that. 
Uh, and he's going to have to do an awful lot of touring across the country because, uh, you know, as, as publicly uh, relevant as Peter McKay is right now, there are still areas of the country that may or may not have an opinion of him that is not going to be particularly helpful to him in this race. So he's going to have to do a lot of uh, traveling around and a lot of handshaking over the next four months. I'd like to bring in conservative strategist Andrew Brander. And Andrew, still with this whole question about uh, social conservatives and whether they're electable, the fact is that Peter McKay voted against same-sex marriage and again voted against reopening it, yet he seems to have this rap as, as somebody who is not socially conservative. You know, what about all that? Yeah, I think I, I think would be in large part that uh, that that comes with the uh, the advantages of sort of being being associated with the former iteration of the Progressive Conservative Party um, and a, uh, a a softer conservatism, if if you will. The question that uh, his candidacy will actually venture to to answer in this uh, in this le- leadership race is whether that uh, brand of conservatism is still is still relevant in this iteration of the conservative party and uh you know peter mckay is going to be relying very heavily on um on the former organizers uh who were who were part of that previous legacy party that that he led um and i think a lot of those questions are going to be answered are these people still around are they still active organizations uh, that, that he can leverage into, into actual real support. I think a lot of the, uh, of the leadership contenders are going to, uh, have to, have to come out and address those votes head on. They have records. And, and I think you'll see actually some of them, uh, you know, come out and flat out say that they were wrong, um, in their, uh, in their previous votes. But obviously, uh, Canadians have moved on it too. Uh, so I think I think it's reasonable to expect that our politicians could have evolved as well. Yeah, look, there's going to be a couple more candidates that get into the Conservative Party race. Um, that's inevitable. Uh, I think uh, once the first debate happens, I think you'll start to see sort of a, a clear front runner. Um, but in the way that uh, leaders are chosen in the Conservative Party of Canada, uh, as you saw last time around, uh, it's not over until the final votes counted. A Polara poll it shows. The leaderless liberals, led by John Fraser, who we rarely see, at 33%, Doug Ford's conservatives at 29%, the NDP at 27 and whoa-ho, Mike Schreiner and the Greens at 9%. <laughs> so, uh, you know, to me, that does not bode well. I mean, if anything, it just shows that, that uh, the conservative... The progressive conservative charm offensive maybe isn't working that well, Aleem. We, well, we've got, you know, March is, is around the corner. Uh, and in March, we're going to find out uh, who the Liberals pick as, as their leader. Uh, candidates are already out there. We've got former Transportation uh, Minister Stephen Del Duca. Who apparently uh, has it sewn up. Well, uh, from, a, from an organization uh, perspective and from fundraising, um, he certainly has an advantage. Uh, we know the way these things work. We know how Dalton McGinty became leader, and it didn't happen on the first ballot years ago. Uh, it was, I believe, on the fourth, on the fourth ballot. So uh, does that you know, uh, spring hope for folks like uh, uh, Mitzi Hunter or Michael Kuto? 
again, both former ministers in the uh, in the Win uh, McGinty years. How will Ontario voters reflect on 15 years of liberal leadership uh, in terms of of bringing in what could be a former McGinty Win uh, stalwart into uh, into the picture? It's almost looked at the same way as how will Canadian voters. Uh, reflect on having a Harper stalwart leading the party. Now, you can make the argument that Peter McKay's been gone for a little bit of time uh, and uh, Ron Ambrose if she decides to enter. But these are things that I think the general public is, is going to look at. The issue, though, is that it's this is not a general public race. These are races for leaders. And these races are very distinct and are organized very differently than a, a, a general election. Uh, but yeah, I, I, you know, Stephen Del Duca... Um, it probably has uh, has 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 uh, has a good shot um, at uh, at winning. How does he debate well on on a stage with with Doug Ford? I think those poll numbers are are going to change when things like that are out, and when we see the attack dog uh, as leader uh, in in uh, in Queen's Park uh, debate and go after uh, the premier, uh, those those numbers will uh, will change as time goes on. At the very least, it's a snapshot in time. Um, oh, boy, how short the memories are in Ontario with respect to the Liberal Party, I guess. Inevitably, once a leader um, is installed, and yes, I will agree with both of you, by all accounts, it looks like it's going to be Mr. Del Duca. Um, there will be holes poked in his sheen fairly quickly, and he'll be forced to answer questions uh, with respect to the failures of the past. And I feel like once uh, the rest of the voting population in Ontario gets a sense that what uh, a liberal solution would be to the current government, um, the varnish will wear thin quite quickly. Libby's Nimer in conversation with Aleem Kanji, Vice President of Government Relations at Sutherland, Andrew Brander and Ashton Arsenault, both senior consultants at Crestview Strategy. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the week. John in Toronto phoned to give his take on how Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is handling the crisis over the downing of Flight 752. I I believe that Trudeau doesn't know the difference between uh, enemies and allies. I guess uh, his comments about, you know, Trump and, and, and U.S.'s responsibility, all of that, you know what, it, if it's true, and maybe it is, and I, and I don't care. Diane in Toronto called to talk about the future for Prince Harry and Duchess Meghan while part-time residents of Canada. I can see Harry, who is, uh, grew up with uh, his mother being chased around the country and ultimately killed by them chasing her. He's going to be very nervous and concerned about them doing the same sort of thing to Megan. And so getting out of Britain, I think, would be the best thing for them and for their own mental health. As for paying for their security, if they are here in Canada representing the British family, yes, we obviously would be paying for their security. They're coming here to be independent and making their own money. Mm-hmm. They should be paying for their own security here if they're, when they're working, just like every other celebrity and big-name person that lives in this country. They pay for their own security, and so should they. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. 
In fact, there were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Jane in Mississauga, who told us her very personal story of assisted death. My husband uh, passed away a week uh, week ago. We uh, found out about the MAID program, and it was perfect for my husband. He um, had been dealing with a very rare uh, heart condition, and and he was getting to the point of really suffering, and he had talked to uh, his longtime 40-year family doctor who uh, totally agreed with him. My husband was 91, very sound mind, very sharp, knew exactly what he was doing, and was just so pleased. He said, this is for me. It couldn't have been more peaceful, and uh, to me, it's, it's it's been like helping me with the grieving process because everything we were able to plan together. And uh, I, I hate to think that two weeks is um, all that people are going to get to comment on this because I don't think uh, most people even know it's available to begin with. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays at 416-360-0740 on Zoomer Radio. AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.